Our Father, we thank you that when the storms of life are raging around us, that you are a source of salvation. I mean, we oftentimes think of salvation in terms of what happens after we die with heaven and such. But Lord, salvation also refers to being delivered, being safe, uh, being redeemed. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of trials, that we don't have to fear because we know the one who holds us in his hand. We know, Lord, that you are trustworthy. As we sang this morning, you are faithful. I pray that now as we open the scripture and come to a, a passage that will challenge us a bit, but also, Lord, help us to learn what you want us to learn and to learn to trust you even amidst the storms and trials of life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So there once were four, four church members who walked into their pastor's office. And they came in, their faces were kind of serious. And they came up to their pastor and held out a sheet of paper. On that sheet of paper were a long list of signatures. And the spokesperson from that group said, Pastor, this is a petition from the congregation. We want you to stop using the term sinner instead refer to people with moral challenges. No more sinner, people with moral challenges. And I think this story is probably fictitious, but it captures well the sentiment of our culture that people don't like talking about sin, unless perhaps it's someone else's sin. But by and large, uh, you know, sin makes people uncomfortable. People try to downplay sin. We, we try to redefine sin. We, we try to normalize sin. We, we try to rationalize sin. We say, well, you know, no one's perfect. And in fact, there are churches and pastors out there that intentionally choose not to use the word sin. They may talk about weaknesses or they may talk about growth areas. But they don't want to talk about sin because that may offend people, and people may not want to come back the next week. I mean, even think about the title of today's sermon if you've seen it. Today's sermon is called Sin, Wrath, and Jesus. Now, I did not put this title out on Facebook. Because I don't think this title is something that's necessarily going to draw people in. People aren't going to be excited about hearing about their sin and about God's wrath. Maybe about Jesus, but, you know, sin and wrath, those don't really appeal to people in a super positive way. But God is holy. And because he is holy, it means that sin is real and that sin has consequences. And this is an uncomfortable truth, especially in today's culture where people are so easily offended but I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Lamentations chapter 2, where we are going to see very clearly that sin is deeply serious. That sin is deeply serious. Now, a disclaimer as we get into Lamentations chapter 2, there is content in this chapter that might make us uncomfortable. It might make some people even offended, even toward God. But just because something makes us uncomfortable does not mean that that thing is untrue. Now, last week we started in Lamentations chapter 1. We saw that Jerusalem had been a vibrant city, a city full of people, a city that was the center of Jewish worship. But then Jerusalem was destroyed, reduced to ashes and dust. And an important question is who did this to Jerusalem? Who caused this devastation? Now, the simple answer, the obvious answer, is that Babylon did it to Jerusalem. I mean, it was the Babylonian Empire, the, the armies of the Babylonian Empire that destroyed Jerusalem. But that's merely the simple answer, the obvious answer. 
The longer answer for who did this to Jerusalem is God. I invite you to follow along as I read Lamentations 2, verses 1 through 3. The prophet Jeremiah writes, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. And so these verses I just read, they are dripping with God's anger and God's wrath. Verse 1 talks about Israel being under a cloud of wrath. Wherever you look there, you see, you feel the consequences of God's wrath. Verse 2 talks about the totality of destruction that was experienced. It says, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. That's referring to the devastation throughout the whole nation. And then Jeremiah zooms in to the cities saying that in his wrath he has broken down the strongholds or the fortified cities of the daughter of Judah. And then he zooms in further to the government, saying that he has brought down to the ground and dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. Verse 3 talks about God's hand of protection that is no longer over Israel. Jeremiah says that he has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. Previously, God had been protecting Israel from her enemies. But now, he's removed that metaphorical hand of protection, allowing the enemies to, to burst in and, and overtake them, just kind of like a raging river bursting through its dam. And so we see just all this, um, all this example here of, of wrath, of anger, of, of devastation that is taking place in Israel. And I think it's important to notice that the focus is not on what Babylon has done, even though Babylon is the instrument of devastation. The focus is on what God has done. And it says, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. And so an important question here is, what in the world is happening? I mean, why is this taking place? Because Israel was God's chosen people. Israel was so special to God. Israel was to be God's representative to the world. Israel was to be the one who would bring into this world the Messiah. So what happened? We even saw back in, uh, back in Exodus chapter 19, just before God gave the Ten Commandments, he's talking about how special Israel would be to him. He's making them a special nation. God says through Moses, um, it says, The Lord called out to Moses of the, on the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, there's a key phrase in here I want to point out. He talks about if you keep my covenant. If you keep my covenant. And, and we have to understand that the destruction of Jerusalem must be interpreted within the context of God's covenant 
with Israel. Now, a covenant is, is a committed, even contractual relationship between two entities. And God established a covenant with the nation of Israel. And within that covenant, it was a commitment, but each side had responsibilities. And if Israel was faithful to God, they would be blessed. Although, on the other hand, if Israel was unfaithful to God, there would be curses. There would be bad things that would come upon them. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 as God is laying out his law for them. In chapter 28, verse 25, it says, The Lord... These are curses for disobedience. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Jumping over to verse 52, it says, They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall, shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb." The flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. Jumping over to verse 64, it says, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples. You know, this is stuff that's uncomfortable to say the least. But this is what was written. This was the agreement that God and Israel made in this covenant. That they will be his special people. But they have a responsibility of faithfulness and obedience as well. We have to understand, God was not hasty in doling out punishment. He, he, he was long-suffering for hundreds of years. He sent prophet after prophet to warn Israel, to call them back to himself, to call them, repent, come back to me. I am like your husband. I am like your father. I, I, I want to be there and walk with you through life so you can live the way that you designed. But even though the prophets kept calling them to repentance, they kept refusing. They kept saying, we're going to do things our way. So we see in Lamentations 2.2, 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. The mercy came to an end. They had many, many, many chances. But then came the day of judgment, came the day when the covenant curses were realized. Let's move on in this passage, picking up in verse 4 to see more of this devastation. It says that God has bent his bow like an enemy, and with his right hand set like a foe, he, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins the strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. That's talking about the temple. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has his, scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as in the day of festival. So this passage I just read, it pictures God as a divine warrior fighting against his people. It says that he was like an enemy to them. It doesn't say he was their enemy. It says he, it felt like he was an enemy. He was acting as if he was an enemy to them as he is bringing his wrath. 
Now again, this is talking all about God's wrath. And the idea of God's wrath can be very difficult to stomach and even difficult to understand because we talk so much about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. We, we talk about how God is a father, how God is like a friend, how God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. But then we come to a passage like this and see reference to God's anger and God's wrath and it can be confusing, it can be disconcerting, make us uncomfortable, make us maybe even wish that this part of the Bible wasn't here. Yet it is here. And this is not isolated. We see references to God's wrath all throughout the Bible, even in the New Testament. So we have to ask, what is going on here with God's wrath? Well, let me give just some explanations, some background on this idea of God's wrath. First of all, God's wrath is his consistent opposition to sin and evil. When we hear wrath, sometimes we think of just someone just flying off in a reckless rage. They're completely irrational. They're completely out of control. It's completely dangerous to be around them in that moment. And to be sure, there are people out there whose temper flares just like this. That they go into a rage. They go into wrath. They, they, they're just they're out of control. But when we see this reference to God's wrath here, that is not how God is. Because God's wrath is rational. God's wrath is intentional, it is logical, it is not out of control. God's wrath is actually based on his holiness and his justice. It is his rational response to sin and evil. And we have to understand also that God's opposition to sin is actually an act of love. Now it might be kind of confusing, but let me explain what I mean. Sin Sin destroys our relationship with God. Sin makes a big mess of our lives, makes a mess of, of the world around us. Sin ultimately will separate us from God for all eternity if something doesn't uh, address that sin problem. So sin destroys people. And I am so thankful that we have a God who is not indifferent to sin and its consequences. That we have a God who cares. Now, in our culture, a lot of people would like God just to be kind of laissez-faire, kind of, well, just kind of go with the flow, be fairly, you know, flexible, and, and just kind of let things slide. Yeah, we may make some mistakes, but yeah, that's fine. Just kind of let those offenses slide. But is it really a loving thing when someone is messing things up and someone's destroying their life or someone's just making bad decisions just to let those slide? I mean, think about a parent. Think about a parent who just kind of lets things slide with their kids. Yeah, my kids, they're underage. They want to drink alcohol. That's fine. My kids want to do drugs. Yeah, uh, so what? Yeah, my kids, they don't want to do their schoolwork. That's fine. They didn't want to do schoolwork their age, at their age either. My kids want to stay out all night with whoever, do whatever. Yeah, I'm fine with that. You know, some teenagers may like having parents like that. They may envy others other peers who have parents who are just more, just go with the flow, let things slide, no big deal. But the parent who is acting like that is not acting in a loving manner. That parent is, is lazy. The parent is negligent. The parent is, is really setting that child up for a world of hurt. Because love wants what is best for people. And in this case with God... If we have sin that is messing up our lives, that's destroying our relationship with God, that's destroying the, the way that he designed us to live, the loving thing for him to do is to address it. 
Now we may still wonder, okay, why so severe in this case? But we have to come back to that covenant and understand that God had created a covenant, a relationship with Israel in a certain way. And these were the outcomes of that covenant. And we also have to understand the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of God. And I think it's hard for us because we are in this world of sin. We have sin in our own lives. It's hard for us to grasp the, 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 just the magnitude of God's holiness and his justice, his intoleration for sin. And so we have to understand that when God is dealing with sin, it's actually an act of love because he wants to, to set aside, even destroy that which is destroying his beloved people. One of the other things we have to understand about God's wrath is that it is contingent on sin. So wrath is not necessarily a core attribute of God. I think this is a helpful perspective to understand. That when you look at God, he has essential characteristics like love and holiness and justice. These are characteristics that are the core, the essence of who he is. Now if there was no sin, there would be no wrath. God's wrath is contingent on sin is his response um, uh, and holiness and justice to sin and evil. But it is not core to his being in the same way that holiness or justice or love is central to his being. Now we come back here to what's taking place in Lamentations. Pick up with me in verse 8. It says, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no visions from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Now, much of, of Lamentations is focused on this metaphorical, this personified suffering of Jerusalem, of the temple. But there's also a, a focus on the suffering of people. And, and Jeremiah is saying, you know what, from old men to young women, people are struggling, people are suffering, people are lamenting. It even goes on to talk about little children. It says at the end of verse 11, the infants and babies faint. In the streets of the city, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? And I think that's kind of funny of our, our babies and infants really going to say, give me some wine. But we have some metaphor going on here as well. But it says they're crying this out as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. And so we see that, that children are deeply affected by this as well. The Babylonian Empire did what was common in warfare, warfare back then, where they laid siege around the city for three years. What this means is that for three years, their army was camped around the city, and they would not let anyone enter Jerusalem or exit Jerusalem. This is a common, but a, just a really horrible form of warfare, because what it did was starve the people. I mean, they would starve them, it would weaken them. So then when the army would go in to, to attack the city, the people would be so weak. People, many people would have already died of starvation. And they'd be so weak they could put up very little resistance. This was common, but it was horrible. And, and one of the outcomes that we see that, that I just want to point out, just because if you read Lamentations, you're, you're probably going to see this and wonder, what is going on here? This is horrible. 
Over in verse 20 of chapter 2, it says, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Similarly, over in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And this is horrible. I mean, there's really no way to get around how horrible this is, but it does show just the utter desperation and even the insanity that accompanies starvation. And this is right in line with what God predicted would happen back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. When he says, and you will eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters during the siege. God knew how warfare works back then. This was just standard for that day of how warfare worked. When the Babylonian Empire came, they surrounded the city. They laid it under siege to starve the people. I mean, it's absolutely terrible. I mean, you can see why there is so much lamenting and grieving going on here. Now come verse 14 back in Lamentations chapter 2 it says your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading this is talking about false prophets and this is something that Jeremiah had to deal with a lot prophets people who said they were speaking on behalf of God to the people of Jerusalem and Judah and these false prophets were saying well no everything's good Nothing bad's going to happen. Your sin's not a big deal. What was sin? But we see back in Jeremiah, we see that, that Jeremiah over and over was addressing these problems. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. These were false prophets telling people what they wanted to hear because no one wants to hear their sin is a problem. No one wants to hear that there could be consequences for your sin. So the false prophets, they were just telling people what they wanted to hear. But they were false prophets because they were not speaking God's truth. And the truth is that sin is serious. If you get nothing else from this passage, take that away. That We need to take sin seriously. We have a natural t tendency, as I said earlier, to downplay sin. To rationalize it. To redefine it. Uh, but sin is dangerous. You know, sin, it has practical consequences on our lives. Sin, I mean, I'm just going to generalize for us. Um, you can fill in details in your own mind, but sin, it damages relationships. Sin destroys marriages. Our sin can corrupt our children. Sin wastes money. Sin wastes time. Sin wastes opportunities. Sin destroys people's futures. Sin creates anxiety and lies and deceptions. And sin can skew our view of reality. On top of this, sin tarnishes or even destroys our relationship with God. It's been said that sin will take you further than you want to go. 
keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And this is true on a personal level, without a doubt, but it's also true on broader levels as well, family level, church level, workplace. Even on a national level, this is true that sin wreaks havoc in people's lives. I mean, here in Lamentations, it's addressing Judah as a nation, Jerusalem as a city. I mean, we live in America. Even here in America, we need to take sin seriously. America does not have the same type of relationship with God that Israel had. God made a covenant with Israel. God has not made the same type of covenant with America. But if we care about this land in which we live, we still need to care about this nation and care especially about the sin of the nation. We need to take seriously the sin of politicians or the sin of policies in America, the sin of our history or the sin of our current culture that we live in now. We need to take that seriously and at the very least to lament over the brokenness of our culture, to pray for repentance in our nation, and on top of that, in our spheres of influence, to live wisely for the sake of Christ. So at the very least, this is what we are called to do, to take sin seriously in all of our spheres of influence. Now the issue is back here in Lamentations, the people of Jerusalem did not take their sin seriously, and it shows that they did not take God seriously either. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper. Why? Because the Lord has afflicted her. Why? For the multitude of her transgressions. The ultimate reason why all this happened in Jerusalem was not the Babylonians and it wasn't even God, even though they both had a significant role in this. The ultimate reason was the sin of the people that they did not take seriously. And we have to, to recognize the fact that one day we will all face a day of judgment. And it's, I'm not talking about judgment that or, 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 or problems that may come upon our nation or even our family. I'm talking about the fact that one day every single one of us will stand before the holy and just God and have to give an account of our lives. And if we take sin seriously, this is a scary thought. Because none of us in and of ourselves can stand before that holy and righteous God without being condemned. That's in and of ourselves. But thankfully God gives us hope. And that hope comes through a new covenant that God is made through Jesus. Jeremiah 31 uh, talks about that new covenant. So this is Jeremiah, the same one writing Lamentations. God spoke to him about a new covenant, saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took, took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It will be a new covenant, a covenant through Jesus. Jesus, in the Last Supper, said to his disciples when he took a cup of wine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant that God has made with people comes through the blood of Jesus. Just after the Last Supper, Jesus took his disciples out to a garden called Gethsemane. And he's praying, uh, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. That cup it comes from Old Testament prophecies that it uses a cup to represent God's wrath. And in fact, on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He absorbed God's wrath. That's why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He absorbed the wrath that we deserve for sin. 
And he makes a way then for us to not have to bear that wrath, for us not to have to bear the eternal consequences of sin. So oftentimes in the Bible we see judgment and wrath depicted metaphorically with fire. Think about a fire. Think about a huge raging forest fire is coming toward you. It's consuming everything in its path. And you don't have the opportunity to outrun it. What hope do you have of surviving that fire? Well, according to the National Forest Service, the way that you can survive a fire is find a place where there is no fuel left to burn. And the way the Forest Service uh, tells us to, to prepare for something like that is to create uh, prescribed burns that you, you burn an area so you burn up all the fuel that is there so then if a raging forest fire is coming and you are able to hunker down in that area that's already burned there's no fuel there left to burn and you will be safe while the forest fire passes right by you it's the same thing that's essentially metaphorically what God has done for us through Jesus it's an area that's already been burned out an area where, where God's wrath has already come on Jesus and if we take our refuge in him casting ourselves on him, saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I can't do this alone. I, I can't um, reconcile myself with God. I am sinful. But we turn, our, turn to Jesus by faith and repentance. Then he will absorb God's wrath for sin on our behalf so that then we can be free, we can be safe, we can be delivered. And this is why we celebrate Jesus so much. So I want to encourage you, if you are someone who has never turn to Jesus in that way. If you are still depending on your own good works or religious activities to earn you favor in God's sight, that's not enough. That does not atone for your sin problem. Jesus is our only hope, so we need to trust in him, lean on him. He is our hope. So God made a new covenant through Jesus. Now I want to come back to the question of why do bad things happen? Why, why do bad things happen in this world? It is not just because of God's wrath. In fact, Christians, if our faith is in Christ, we will not be experiencing God's wrath. But there are still bad things that happen in this world. So let me just list in brief a few different reasons why bad things happen. One is sometimes God is disciplining us. That we have sin in our lives. It's not wrath. It's not even punishment. But it's discipline to help us to grow to be more like him. Sometimes it's because of the consequences of our poor decisions. We make a poor decision. People struggle to take responsibility for their decisions. But frequently bad things that happen are because we've made poor decisions. Or, or sometimes the bad things happen because they're consequences of someone else's poor or selfish or mean-spirited decision. Or sometimes it's simply because we live in a world where sinful depravity has tainted everything. And that's the case for why there are diseases, why there are natural disasters, why there are genetic problems that are passed down. It's because we live in a world where that sin has tainted deeply and everything bears the negative consequences of sin, either directly or indirectly. And oftentimes, uh, the, the, the bad things that we experience, we can't fully see why is this happening. Frequently, it's a combination of a number of factors. But when we face hardships in life, is a call to lament, a call to trust God, a call to learn what he wants us to learn, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. And it's also a call that if we recognize sin in our lives, to repent. We can be thankful that if our faith is in Christ, according to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We also have the promise that if we sin, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all 
and righteousness. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have opened the way for us to be redeemed. This passage we looked at today, it's, it's a heavy passage. It's not necessarily one of those feel-good passages, but we thank you, Lord, that there is a good end to the story when our faith is in Jesus. Because sin and wrath does not have to define us, but instead we can have a new life with Christ. We can be passed over when, when, when that day of judgment comes. Not because of anything we've done, but because we are trusting in Jesus and what he has done. So Jesus, we thank you that you're an advocate by our side. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful God. May we take heed of that mercy that you offer to us. Take hold of it by faith and live a lifestyle of repentance and a lifestyle living life you've designed us to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfectly a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on His hands. My name is written. With Christ my Savior and
with Christ my Savior and